I selected this passage for this afternoon because I wanted to consider the words and the theology of Peter's confession. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. I have observed for several years now as men and women from pop Christianity have deconstructed their faith to the extent that their form of Christianity is no longer orthodox and in many cases should not even be considered Christianity. Or they have simply left the faith altogether, declaring themselves atheists or agnostics. And I've also seen it come to affect my own friends and family. And I'd like to ask, if you're willing, if you, if you would raise your hand, if you have a, a friend that you know that grew up in the church and have left because they couldn't, they couldn't come to hold that the scripture, that, that what it proclaimed is true of Christ um, or true to life. If you have a friend that left the faith that you knew that grew up in church, and then, and, and I see a few hands, and how many of you have had family members that have also left the faith uh, that you knew that grew up in church. And um, again, this, this hit home to me um, very recently. Um, and, and, and as this issue hits home, it becomes more personal. And so um, it, it made me have a more vested interest to assert again some of the critical fundamentals of the faith. And it's proper for us as Christians to continually strengthen ourselves in the fundamental truths of the faith in order to have the confidence in who Jesus revealed himself to be so that we may not back down in the face of ridicule or objection and to speak well in response to criticism. The sermon title for this passage is Only Christ Gives Life. And primarily, this addresses the false teaching of universalism. Referring to a belief in universal salvation. Will everyone eventually be in heaven? The Jew, the Muslim, Hindu, atheist, pagan, Wiccan? Or is eternal life only for the men and women who have placed their faith in Jesus? I will demonstrate from this passage that only Christ gives life. This was asserted by Peter from the scripture reading earlier. Only Jesus Christ gives eternal life and we must cling to him in faith, acknowledging that he is everything that he has declared himself to be. We will spend the majority of our time in John 6, verses 35 through 71. Six times in these verses, Jesus refers to everlasting or eternal life. Three times Jesus calls for belief in himself. Also expressed throughout this section are the Reformed doctrines of election, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, limited atonement and or particular redemption, and preservation of the saints. And I will point these out as we work our way through the text. We will consider the mission of Christ's work on earth and how that integrates into the following dialogues between Jesus and his disciples. And I have three main points for this afternoon, and they're printed in your bulletin. These we will examine from John 6, verses 41 through 71. First, know Jesus as he has revealed himself. Two, confess only the body and blood of Christ give life. 
And three, cling to Christ's words of life. First, however, I want to back up to John 6, verses 1 through 34. And I want us to to provide some background. So basically, in 30 minutes, we're going to cover the whole chapter of John 6. Bear with me. It's not going to be as long as it seems. We'll start to make some leaps and bounds. Now, in verses 1 through 15, John recounts the feeding of the 5,000 with only five barley loaves and two fish, which culminated in an abundance of 12 baskets of bread left over. And then you see in verse 14, it's especially important to acknowledge the people's response. The text says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. They believed that Jesus' miraculous feeding of them signified that he was indeed the awaited Messiah. In fact, they wanted to make him king then and there by force if necessary. In the following section, the apostles set sail for the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and they left without Jesus. The winds were rough, and they were barely making progress, until Jesus essentially showed up out of nowhere to their terror, until they realized that it was him, uh, and then to their delight, they gratefully welcomed him into the boat, which the text has miraculously arrived at their destination, and as John records, immediately or at once. Now, the disciples, those who were, generally speaking, followers of Jesus, who had the pleasure of being fed that day, they observed that Jesus had not entered the boat with the apostles, and there had been no other boats from which Jesus could have left. So these disciples were somewhat dismayed the following day that they could not find him there that following morning. Boats were coming to shore from nearby, and a crowd was forming, all searching after Jesus. In verse 23, John subtly reveals their true motive by describing the area where they were gathering as near the place where they had eaten the bread. They merely wanted to be fed again. Realizing that Jesus was nowhere around, they presumed to find him in Capernaum, which is confirmed in verse 59. When they found him, Jesus ignored their question about his travel and confronted them By directly exposing their true intent. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus will later demonstrate that signs do not reveal the truth to the skeptic, but only to the one who has faith. He knew that the crowd wanted their fill of physical bread, but Jesus had already transitioned the conversation to the true bread from heaven. The spiritual bread that gives life to the world. Their reaction was similar to Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman from John 4. She asked, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. These men said, Sir, give us this bread always. Yet still their hearts were fixed upon the temporal, the fleshly. From this context, Jesus will utter his first I am statement. Of the seven that John recorded. And he will disclose the purpose of his earthly mission. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who, has sent, who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Notice, however, that he broadens the analogy, which incorporates his previous interaction with a Samaritan woman about the living water. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. These disciples wanted to have their physical hunger alleviated, but Jesus is concerned with their spirit. Christ had said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus also confronts these disciples in their lack of true belief, which is saving faith. They had already seen one sign with their eyes, and they witnessed the work of Christ. Their interaction with Jesus is comparable to the demons, which James records, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What they believe with their eyes, they do not believe with their hearts. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Note Jesus' assurance. He is not wringing his hands, hoping to win them over with his arguments, nor is he willing to give in and show them more signs. Jesus confidently asserts that his mission will not fail. This is the theology of efficacious grace. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those that the Father has given to Jesus are the elect from before the foundation of the world. From the human perspective, we come to Christ through the instrument of faith. From the divine perspective, we were predestined from before the foundation of the world. Our salvation is not possible. It is certain. Jesus assures them that those who believe in him will not be cast out. The Jews understood the implications of being cast out from society as a leper or unclean in another manner and being cast out of the synagogue. Being ostracized from the community was devastating for the first century Jew. Have you ever felt ostracized, left out, cast out, or a feeling that you just didn't belong? Jesus affirms, come to me, and I will never cast you out. And that is comforting. It also confronts anyone who might suggest that a Christian can lose his salvation. You cannot. Eternal life is precisely that. It is not start, stop, start, and hope that you're in the green when you die, so that you can transition into everlasting life only after death? No. John assures the readers in 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. 
In John 6, verses 38 through 40, Jesus tells them that his mission on earth in doing the will of his Father is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This statement further points to the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement, which professes that Jesus' death was specifically to pay the debt of sin to secure the salvation of the elect. We also observe the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. In the work of Christ, he will redeem a people for himself and ensure their preservation in this life and the next. Christ has fully paid the price for our sins. A believer may not sin himself out of salvation. That is the most absurd teaching that a Christian can espouse. The one who believes in Christ cannot lose his or her salvation. These will be raised to life in Christ at his second coming. This, is, this was so important that Jesus repeated his words with an adjustment for distinction. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. In those few verses, Jesus confronted these disciples on the, what they were to believe about bread and signs. You want physical bread. I am the spiritual bread from heaven. You want signs to believe. I want you to believe in me. Eternal life is only found through belief in Jesus Christ. Belief in Jesus includes believing in who he claims to be. One cannot have faith in Christ and not acknowledge his deity. Jesus professed that he is the bread of heaven and the Son. His assertion as the Son relating to the Father is a declaration of his deity, which he will continue to affirm in his teaching. From these foundational statements, we will consider the three main points of the message. First, the Jews had familiarity without knowledge. They knew of Jesus, but they could not accept him as he claimed to be. You are called to know Jesus as he has revealed himself. And that's our first point. Know Jesus as he has revealed himself. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The Jews complained because they could not rationalize that Jesus was precisely who he claimed to be. They had familiarity with Jesus, but they did not have the spiritual knowledge to accept him on his own terms. Jesus understood, however, that their lack of belief could not thwart his mission. When Jesus states, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, the word can specifies ability. Now, I work in administration. I'm consistently studying and having Word documents open for notes and writing. And I use a tool in, that works with Word and it's called Grammarly. 
you've ever heard of it. And if you haven't and you type in your computer, I recommend you get it. That being said, and the free version. So I'm not, a, I'm not making an advertisement. You don't have to spend your money. I used the free one. It worked quite, quite well. Now, when I use Grammarly to check my Word documents, not only does it try to correct misspelled words, but it tries to um, make your writing more concise and, and understandable. And whenever I type in the phrase, has the ability, Grammarly always says you should replace that multiple word phrase, has the ability, and use the singular word can, because can denotes ability. So even in the English, which is what we're reading from, can reflects ability. No man has the ability to come to Christ of himself. This speaks to the total depravity of man. Although we are not as bad or simple as we could be, every facet of man's mind, will, and emotions are corrupted by sin. Jeremiah in chapter 17 verse 9 recorded the words of Yahweh. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul wrote that an unregenerate man is dead in trespasses and sins. The one who comes to faith in Christ comes because she or he is compelled by the Father. This is the meaning of the word draw. This verb carries the notion of hauling, of, of hauling something from one place to the other with the exertion of power. In John 21, verse 6 and 11, when the apostles had the net teeming with fish, the text says that they could not draw the net in. Peter had to draw the net to shore. It's the same word in those two verses, yet the second is translated as drag in the New King James Version or haul in the ESV. Peter had to drag the net to shore. It's the same verb used as well in Acts 21, verse 30 where Paul was dragged out of the temple by an angry mob. Jesus explains that the drawing or dragging work of God is fulfilled through spiritual teaching from God. Don't misunderstand me to say that God ever drags someone into salvation, kicking and screaming. No, the Holy Spirit teaches us and trains us and changes our will that we have the ability. So when when you hear me say dragging... It's not that God drags anyone into heaven, but he changes our will so that we may accept Christ for who he claims to be. Jesus also reiterates the efficaciousness of the spiritual teaching, and here we see irresistible grace. This spiritual teaching has its intended effect. When a person hears and learns from the Father, that one necessarily comes to Christ in faith. Jesus proclaims this belief assures eternal life. By stating that no one has actually seen the Father, he is demonstrating that it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Which he clarifies further in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Man is totally depraved, so our works of the flesh are of no avail. Our flesh is no help at all. Paul states it this way in Titus. 3 verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Additionally, looking back to verse 46, Jesus uses this opportunity to make the distinction that only he who is from God has seen the Father. And this is a proclamation of his deity. How so? First, in verse 48, he restates, I am the bread of life. Second, he asserts in verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. The pronoun this in that verse refers back to himself as I am the bread of life, which he reasserts straightforwardly, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, in some respect, every time Jesus declared his deity, it was a hard saying, especially for his audience. Often the Jews would seek to kill him for his supposed blasphemy in equating himself with God. However, the statement that sets them off this time is his assertion that his flesh is the bread of life that must be consumed by those who believe in him. Is Jesus suggesting cannibalism? I assure you that there are skeptics today who believe that Christianity teaches cannibalism to some extent. And that has been true over the centuries. We must look at this hard saying more closely and confess only the body and blood of Christ give life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In Jesus' assertion, he is applying the spiritual truth to the symbol By stating that his body, his flesh, is the bread that he will give for the life of the world. But before we address the symbolic language which followed, I want us to consider the importance of understanding the definition of world as used in verse 51. It is imperative to acknowledge that Jesus is not speaking of universal salvation. We know this directly from verses 64 to 65, where Jesus professed, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Later as well in verse 70, he states that knowingly, that he knowingly selected his 12 apostles, of which one is a devil. Speaking of Judas. By world... Jesus is foreshadowing the salvation of those not only from Israel, but from all of the nations. He is not speaking of everyone in the world, but people from every class, tongue, tribe, and nation. That Jesus knows who will and will not believe directly correlates to the election of the saints from before the foundation of the world. And clarifies that his mission is of particular redemption to come and to save his people. As we return to the symbolic language Jesus is using about the bread and his flesh, however, the people immediately connected their base desire for physical bread to disputing over how Jesus 
were presumed to give them his flesh to eat. Their minds were on their stomachs, not their hearts. Jesus doubles down on his metaphor, however, to challenge the sincerity of their belief and their carnal desire for the bread that gives eternal life. Jesus makes a conditional statement. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then he restates it positively. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is stating that his body and his blood necessarily give eternal life to the one who eats it in faith. And this assures their resurrection to life with him on the last day. And he continues, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The reader needs to understand what these disciples did not. Jesus is using the metaphor of bread to represent his body as the source of sustenance and nutrition for true spiritual life. He is using symbolic language that speaks of the necessity to intimately internalize the literal sacrificial death of Jesus Christ into the body of the believer. The believer does this through faith. In partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper, Christ said, This is my body, and this is my blood. We do not need to believe, as the Catholics and the Lutherans, that the bread and wine literally convert into the flesh and blood of Jesus, nor that he is in, with, and under in a physical manner. This is metaphorical language of a spiritual reality. We know that he is speaking of spiritual things and not of physical things because he clarifies in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. When one believes in Christ and applies Jesus' life and death in faith for the salvation of their souls and to reconcile themselves to God, this is the act of spiritually feasting on the flesh and blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper then also symbolically memorializes Jesus' death until he returns. Yet it is not merely memorial. As we partake of the elements in faith, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, really and truly, though spiritually and not physically, is present. We confess in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, in answer 96, the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood, with all his benefits, to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. We know that this is a complicated doctrine, a com- complicated teaching, yet we are called to cling to Christ's words of life. That's our third point. Cling to Christ's words of life. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is truly a hard saying, and Jesus will turn his attention from the disciples, who will leave him, to his apostles to help them understand. Jesus does not explain the reason For his hard saying in this passage, though it does call to mind his response recorded in Mark 4, verses 11 through 13, where Jesus said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? We have observed that Jesus was not surprised that there were disciples that could not accept his teaching and would turn away. John records in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Today in the church, and again, even in some of our very own families, have considered the hard teachings of Jesus and throughout scripture, and when they could not rationalize it in the flesh of their minds, have turned away. We should not be surprised either, no matter how heartbreaking it is. John also warned the church of this in 1 John 2.19. And he writes there, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all... Are, that they all are not of us. But we must also ask ourselves, what do we do next? Do we harden our hearts and despise those who left? I think not. I will end with three suggestions. First, we must cling to what we know to be true in faith and grasp hold of Christ. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We know that there is salvation nowhere else. So while we rest in our faith, we also pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Read your Bible daily, and as necessary, wrestle to understand what God has revealed to us in his word. Jude states it this way, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Second, we must acknowledge that we do not know who is of the elect. 
We must continue to proclaim the gospel message and the truths of scripture and freely offer the call to salvation to anyone and everyone who will listen. We will inevitably meet those who wrestle with their faith, some who doubt, and others who are trying to talk themselves out of the faith. Jude also states, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What he means is that we need to use discernment on who will respond with gentle guiding back to Christ, while others will need a more direct approach. We might even have to directly confront someone and call them to repentance and challenge their simple beliefs in order to win them back, so to speak, as if directly saving them from the fire. Third, we must acknowledge that some will reject everything they have heard and know of Christ. We are called to discern the fruit of those who claim to be Christians, yet hold to another teaching, which is no gospel at all. Moreover, the church is called upon at times to make judgments about the validity of one's confession and sometimes remove someone from the church in discipline. However, we do not know the end state of things, how the Holy Spirit will work in the mind and heart of someone and whom God will call to repentance. In this case, pray patiently for them. Deal kindly with them so that you may winsomely continue to evangelize them. And pray for discernment in how you might spend your time with them in order to share the gospel and point them back to Christ. In closing, if you are here today and you know that your soul is pierced with the gospel by the Holy Spirit, turn to Christ today. Acknowledging that it is only through faith in him that you may have eternal life. Right now, acknowledge your sinfulness and seek reconciliation in the body and the blood of Jesus Only Jesus Christ gives eternal life. And we must cling to him in faith, acknowledging that he is everything that he has declared himself to be. If you are struggling in your faith, perhaps even wrestling with some hard truths of scripture, do not give up. Pray and hold fast to the truths you know and have confessed. Only Jesus Christ gives eternal life. And we must cling to him in faith, acknowledging that he is everything that he has declared himself to be. If you are strong in your faith, rejoice and then step out in faith to aid the weaker brother and sister. Let's close in prayer.